Tim Kirkchen, what is your earliest memory of baseball? My earliest memory was a game at Fenway Park. I was probably six years old, maybe seven. And I was sitting in the bleachers with my father and my brothers, and Felix Mantilla hit a home run. And I remember that vividly, like Felix Mantia just hit a homer and it came up kind of near us in the grandstand. That's my first memory of actually going to a major league game and actually remembering what I saw. And uh, quite appropriately, it was with my father sitting right next to me and my brothers also. Tim, I'm just doing the math here about Felix Mantia. He last played for the Boston Red Sox in 1965. So this is a memory you vividly recall 57 years later, at least. Well, again, Pablo, I've made this clear. I, I stink at everything. I am so <laughs> bad at so many things. The one thing that I've always, always, always loved is baseball. And I can remember stuff. I remember stories. I remember uniform numbers. I remember statistics. Yes. I can't remember anything else you know, we'll go to a party at, at at somebody's house and my wife will say what did you think of the chandelier in the living room and i don't even remember the living room let alone the chandelier but i do have a good memory it's selective retention we all have it so i remember stuff that happened a long long time ago because then and still now it was important to me because it's baseball so I tell all young people, don't be like me. You got to learn more about the world than I do. <laughs> you got to know who the Supreme Court justices are more than you need to know who hit the most home runs for every letter in the alphabet. That stuff is not important, but sadly, it is for me. Tim Kirkchen is a baseball savant. And he would never call himself that. Not in a million years, by the way. But I don't really know how else to put it. He actually knows who hit the most home runs for every letter in the alphabet. And he actually remembers all of these insanely minute details from games that were like 60 years ago. But as of tomorrow, there will be an even better way to describe Tim Kirkchen. Hall of Famer. So today, we celebrate the life and career of our favorite baseball nerd, a short, skinny kid who took a love of baseball and not much else and made it all the way to Cooperstown. I'm Pablo Torre. It is Friday, July 22nd. This is ESPN Daily. So, Tim, you are receiving the Career Excellence Award from the Baseball Writers Association of America at their Hall of Fame ceremony tomorrow. And so, Tim Kirkchen, Hall of Famer. How does all of that sound to you right now? Well, it's just overwhelming. It's so much more powerful than I thought it was going to be. And I just took a trip to Cooperstown last Tuesday and Wednesday 
I've been there a hundred times, of course, but mm. I just wanted to see where the venues are, where a speech is going to be made, what the town looks like. And I just wanted to make sure I understood what I'm getting into here. And I don't care how corny this sounds. I went into the theater at the museum at the Hall of Fame, and they have a 15-minute movie about the history of baseball, just how great the game is. And within 45 seconds, I was crying within 45 <laughs> seconds of this movie starting. And it just showed me, again, that the shared interest that people have in baseball, especially in Cooperstown, is what separates it and, I believe, this sport from the others. You know, I know football's more popular and basketball's more popular now, but baseball goes so much further back than anything else. And there are people who have lived their lives through this game and I'm one of them. So Hall of Famer, I'm not technically a Hall of Famer. I'm being honored by the Hall of Fame, but Johnny Bench is a Hall of Famer. I'm not, but it's <laughs> kind of the same idea. Well, Tim, I reject that distinction because it sounds to me like a distinction without a difference, honestly. But I do want to ask you a follow-up here because you said that you cried 45 seconds into that baseball movie a week before the actual induction. So what does the forecast look like for you in terms of tears ahead of the weekend? Well, I have no shot of getting through this speech without tears. I'm talking about my mother and my father. That's enough. I'm talking about my brother who has ALS. I'm talking about all the people that have helped me get to this place. So I have memorized my speech. I have done it a hundred times and mm. I cry every single time I do it because I can't help it. And I just hope I get through it because this will be an emotional day for me. I, I've been doing this a long time, Pablo. I've spent a lot of time away from home. I've been traveling and in hotels and I've, I haven't been around all the time and I just need to make sure that this is all worth it in the end. And hopefully that's the point I'll get across in my speech is how much all my friends, family have meant to me over the years and how much baseball has meant to me. This is not going to be a referendum on journalism today or, you know, suggestions for young writers, or mm. how we should make the game better. This is all about a love for the game because, Pablo, that's all I have here. Okay, I'm not a great <laughs> writer. I look terrible on TV. I'm four feet tall. I have an uh. awful voice, but... I've had a love of the game that has carried my entire career. That's all I have, and that's all I'll ever have. Tim Kirkshin, everybody who has listened to you just a couple minutes into this podcast already knows the profundity of your passion for the game, how genuine your joy is when you consume the game in all of its forms. How would you describe sort of the arc of your relationship with baseball? Did this all set in right at the start, or did it grow as time passed? You know, my dad was a really good player and baseball was the primary language spoken in my house. This is all we talked about. So I loved this as far back as I can remember. I mean, throwing balls up against the house, playing out in the driveway, playing in the court, playing on the fields. This is all we did in my house. So it only grew from there. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, of course, I went to Walter Johnson High School in Bethesda, <laughs> Maryland. This is Big Train High School, is what you're saying. Yes, named after the greatest pitcher of all time. <laughs> My gosh, if that isn't destiny, that some little dorky little baseball 
nut ends up with a career out of baseball, having gone to Walter Johnson High School. You know, I worked for the school paper. It was called the Pitch. Ugh. Yeah, I worked. Yeah. I worked for the yearbook. It was called the Windup. <laughs> and sensing a theme here. Yeah, right. And so I always felt like when I graduated from high school there at five two and about a hundred and twelve <laughs> pounds and looking really good, I figured, all right, my baseball and basketball careers are probably going to end here. How do I make a career in baseball somehow? And believe me, Pablo. I was an awful writer in high school. Well, I was going to ask about Little Train Kirkshin's scouting report as a journalist here, because the baseball stuff, you've established that, okay, that wasn't going to be your future playing the game itself, but you're pretty unsparing, it sounds like, in terms of your assessment as a writer. Well, I wrote one <laughs> I wrote one story in high school, and Mr. Klein, one of the gym teachers, came up to me and said, Tim, that might be the worst story I've ever read in the school paper. I, I hope you're not planning on making this your life's work. That's what he told me. Do you remember what it was about, Tim? What that it was story about was about? The, it was like a story on the football team starting the season. Like, here's who the starting left tackle's going to be. And I had spelling mistakes. I got names wrong. It was awful. Uh. Fortunately, I got better at writing. My mother was a great writer. So it was apparently inside me to get better at this, but it took a little time. Yeah, so how do you go from writing the worst story in the history of the pitch at Walter Johnson High School to being a professional? Well, it started in my bedroom on classic Saturday nights in high school when everyone was out drinking and chasing girls and everything else, and I'm sitting up there by myself playing APBA or Stratomatic Baseball, dice baseball games in my bedroom by myself at <laughs> 11 o'clock at night. A few nights, I just kind of looked around and said, like, is there something wrong with you? Because you're the only person in the world that's doing this. So I would play a game and then I would write the story of the game after the game. Oh, wow. So this is where I started to develop some sort of writing talent, is writing about my own Stratomatic games that I played <laughs> in my bedroom on Saturday nights all by myself. That's kind of where it started. And then I went to work for the Montgomery Journal newspaper, and I just started to write all the time. Just like anything else, Pablo, if you want to be a good free throw shooter, you have to take a lot of free throws. If you want to be able to hit, you got to get in the cage for a long time. That was my thinking. If I'm not born and gifted to do this, I better learn how to do it by doing it all the time. And that's how I went from the worst writer in the history of my high school paper to a professional. By the way, I covered a minor league team in Alexandria, Virginia, the Alexandria Dukes, who played at a, a little league stadium, basically. <laughs> and, and it was at a, an elementary school, Cora Kelly Elementary School. And they turned an elementary school into the clubhouse for the players. That was my indoctrination into pro ball. That was a ball. Those guys had all been drafted. So I went to my boss and said, 
I want to cover the A-ball team in Alexandria. I was like 22 at the time. He goes, well, I'm glad you came in because I couldn't find anyone at the newspaper who wanted to do this <laughs> except for you. So I spent two years going to all the home games in Alexandria, Virginia. It was a tremendous learning experience for me to understand minor league baseball. But I was watching a game like every night and I was writing about it every night. And even though it was like four inches in the paper, six inches at the most, at least I was writing every night and that made me better. So Tim, how do you go from that to the majors as a journalist? Well, I was working at the Washington Star and Dan Shaughnessy was our baseball writer and he became my mentor. I followed everything that he did. I went to games with him and I learned so much just by watching him do the job. Dan took me to an Orioles game because I'm going to become his backup. This is in 1980, late in 1980. Mm -hmm. So I meet... Earl Weaver for the first time. Earl Weaver, of course, the irascible, of course. irreverent, brilliant Earl Weaver. Yes, the Hall of Fame manager of the Baltimore Orioles. Dan introduces me to Earl Weaver, and I look like I'm 13 years old, and I'm, you know, I'm four foot eleven. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so Dan says, Earl, this is Tim Kirkjian. He's going to be covering some games when I'm not here. And Earl looks at me and goes, fuck you, Tim, and walks away. <laughs> so the greatest manager of our time F-bombs me and walks away <laughs> in the first time I had ever met him. And Dan looks at me and goes, don't worry, that's what Earl says to all the people that he likes. <laughs> I didn't know where to laugh or to cry. That's where I got my start in the major leagues was covering baseball as Dan Shaughnessy's backup at the Washington Star. I knew what a hard hit ball was. I knew how difficult that play in the hole was to make. I understood what a tremendous throwing arm from right field was. I just didn't know how to be a reporter yet. And I didn't know how to write a game story yet on deadline. That's what Dan taught me. And I will be forever indebted to him. The privilege of being a beat writer in specific, Tim. I, I know this because I have friends who've done the job, but I want our listeners to appreciate how sometimes that privilege does not exactly feel like a privilege. I mean, you covered the Orioles famously for the Baltimore Sun. What is the life of a beat guy like? It is the best job I've ever had. It's the most satisfying and the most difficult job I've ever had. The pressure of being the beat guy, especially in a wildly competitive market like Baltimore. Oh, my God. I went up against Richard Justice and Ken Rosenthal mm -hmm. every day. I mean, talk about pressure. I would take the other two papers every day and get in my car on days I was home and go drive with my two dogs to a secluded area and let the dogs run. And I would read the papers, the opposing papers in my car. Yeah. Because if I got beaten on a story, 
I would just windmill the paper across the car and scream out loud because I was so furious that I missed <laughs> something. And I was so embarrassed that I missed something. And I didn't want anyone else to see my anger <laughs> and my paranoia and everything else. So I think being a beat writer was all about the respect that eventually you get from the players that every time they look around, he's still here. Like he goes on all the trips with us. Every time I turn around, he's there. I'm going to use another terrible word here, but I went to an inner squad game at Miami Stadium when I covered the Orioles in 1986. They started the game at eight o'clock in the morning. And there was supposed to be an off day for the players and everyone else. So the writers took an off day, but I went to the stadium at eight o'clock to watch an inner squad game. And Earl Weaver looked at me and said, what are you doing here? Why don't you just go out and f somebody? <laughs> it was him saying, why don't you have anything else to do with your life? But my point is, if you're going to do the beat properly, it has to seriously dominate your entire life. I did the beat for 10 years. I didn't have children during my 10 years on the beat. Otherwise, I would have been a terrible beat guy or I would have been a terrible father. So once I got off the beat and went to Sports Illustrated, then we had children. <laughs> Not like it was easy at Sports Illustrated, believe me. That was no. another challenge of all challenges going to Sports Illustrated. But yes, that's when we had children, when I had a little bit more time and I wasn't at a game writing four stories a day until 12.30 every morning. All right, Tim, coming up. I want your best stories from your more than 40 years covering the game. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. You described your pathway from Beat Guide to National Magazines. And I just want to I want to know, Tim, if there was a moment early in your career, I suppose, when you truly felt starstruck. Well, it, it happened a lot of times early in my career. I was at Memorial Stadium once and I went up to the press room where the lone bathroom was and Joe DiMaggio walked in through another door. And now Joe DiMaggio and I are heading towards the one bathroom, <laughs> me and the Yankee Clipper. 
<laughs> and he has no idea who I am, of course, nor should he. And he just looks at me and goes, I got to go worse than you do. And he moved ahead and went to the bathroom. Like, I was going <laughs> to jump in front of Joe DiMaggio to go to the bathroom. As if you're going to jump in front of one of the most intimidating human beings to encounter at the bathroom. Right. The, the other one where I was so starstruck was in 1982. It was Old Timers Day at Fenway Park. And again, I grew up with a father who grew up telling me stories about Ted Williams and Lefty Grove and Jimmy Fox. So I felt like Ted Williams was, he was my father's baseball hero. So Old Timers Day, 82. All these Hall of Famers are out on the field at Fenway Park. It was just an amazing collection of old Red Sox. And out of the dugout comes Ted Williams. <laughs> and he's wearing a big jacket because he's gotten heavy because he's like 63 years old now. He takes off his jacket and the entire Fenway Park goes silent. He steps in the box to take batting practice. He digs in just like my father told me he did and just like those grainy old highlight reels showed. He stood in the box just like he did in 1941. Mm. First pitch of batting practice comes in. He bounces the ball into the right center field dugout, which would have been a ground rule automatic double on the first pitch. <laughs> and I am 10 feet away from Ted Williams taking batting practice. And I went, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. We didn't have cell phones in 1982. So as soon as batting practice was over, I ran up to the press box and I called my father and I said, Pop, I just saw Ted Williams take batting practice. <laughs> it was just like you told me it was, and it was breathtaking. Those are the kind of things that stick with me 40 years later. Is there a moment when you think back on all of it that sticks out to you as the most unforgettable moment that you ever covered? Yeah, I think the Cal Ripken breaking of the Lou Gehrig record is the most powerful and important night that I've ever spent in a major league park. And again, I covered every World Series game since 1981. Right. I've seen every All-Star game. I've seen perfect games. I've seen five no-hitters. But that was different. Hello once again, everybody. I'm Chris Berman. We are so glad to have you with us, as it truly is our privilege at ESPN to be here ourselves. 2,131 consecutive games for Cal Ripken. What a celebration. Before that game, my dear, dear friend, Bob Elliott. Bob Elliott is a great writer. He's from Toronto, so he doesn't know Cal Ripken really at all. And he just showed up for the morning of 2-1-3-1. So the game's about to start. And he looks at me and he goes, Tim, look, I don't get it. I don't feel it. I don't see it. I don't understand it. What is the big deal about today? We know he's going to break the record. What is the big deal? So I said, boxer, look, I don't know. Something's going to happen tonight. I don't even know what it is, but something's going to happen that's going to be unforgettable. I promise you that. So Ripken breaks the record. They drop the banner down from the warehouse, 2-1-3-1. Then we think, well, that's it. And Rafael Palmero and Bobby Bonilla pushed him out of the dugout and said, you need to run a lap around the stadium. So Cal Ripken ran a lap around Camden Yards, and he was slapping five with fans, 
He was pointing at people in the stands. He might not have known their name, but he knew their faces. He knew that guy's at every game sitting in that seat. He patted his heart going around the bases. It was one of the most powerful, exhilarating moments that I've ever spent in a major league ballpark. It was unbelievable. A moment that will live for 2,131 years. We will never see anything like this again It lasted 22 minutes. Mm. So Bob Elliott, my dear friend, comes over to me after this amazing 22 minutes. And he's got tears in his eyes. And he says, okay, I get it. (laughs) That's how important that night was, not just for Baltimore fans, but for baseball fans. That was about commitment and loyalty and neighborhood. Cal Ripken was just different. It is no surprise, Tim, that you personally appreciate the number 2,131. It's no surprise that consistency, that record, is something that you find not just meaningful but moving because you had your own streak going for a long time, right? I mean, like, the idea of being quote-unquote old school... I don't know if there is a more old school thing than your personal relationship with the newspaper box score. Yeah, I I cut out every box score of every major league game and taped them in my box score books for 20 years. And I never missed a day, which I think we can all agree is way more impressive than any streak (laughs) that Cal Ripken ever did. I once woke up at 11.45 one night and realized, oh my God, I forgot to do my box score book today. So I ran into my office, cut out my box scores like a seven-year-old would do. (laughs) And then I came back to bed and my wife was there and she gave me that look like, how could I have married such an unfathomable (laughs) geek? But again, Pablo, this was important to me because this is pre-internet. And I needed those box scores. When I took a trip from, let's say, Maryland or D.C. to San Diego to go see the Padres, and I hadn't seen them in a month, I would go through every box score in my box score book that the Padres played, and I would know, you know, this is what they're doing in the seventh inning. This is how they're platooning at second base. Mm. So it gave me a working knowledge. I would literally spend five hours on an airplane going through my box score book to make sure I understood what I was getting into. And God, it was important. I used to, this is terrible. I used to stack my old box score books in my closet where all my clothes were. And I came home from a trip and the shelves of my closet had collapsed from the weight of my (laughs) box score books. So I got home and there, all my suits are like lying on the floor, covered in plaster, and all my box score books are opened. Here's another three hit game for Wade Boggs. (laughs) And it should have been a reminder that maybe this is a sign from God that you shouldn't be doing this anymore. It ruined half of my suits, believe me. It wasn't easy to find a 36 short on the rack those days. So my brother, Matt, my best friend, I told him what happened. And then he, being the most resourceful man in the world, the complete opposite of his little brother, came over and rebuilt the shelves and fixed my closet for me. But that should have been a reminder that 
you don't need to do this anymore. Well, I did it for another two years and then I quit, but only because I couldn't find all the box scores that I needed. And if I was missing one, I was missing them all. Yeah, Tim, I got to say that feel, I'm no I'm no psychiatrist, but all of that feels like a metaphor. Yeah, I, I'm sure I have a lot of metaphors, none of which I'm proud of. But <laughs> this is the way it goes. I told you once I told stupid Levitard once that I had a recurring nightmare that I was at the free throw line shooting free throws. And oh, instead yes. of shooting a basketball, I was shooting a winter coat. <laughs> One of my favorite anecdotes. Which, of course, you can't shoot a winter coat. <laughs> you shoot it, and it opens up like a parachute, and it always falls short of the rim. So that means I just shot an air ball <laughs> from the free throw line. Yeah, I'm a strange little man. I, I don't mind saying that. After the break, I have more basketball questions for you, Tim, actually. And I also want to know the key to a good Tim Kirkjian impersonation. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is, not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut, or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. your relationship with basketball is its own story, right? Because as much as you are wildly and just like admirably self-deprecating, Tim, truly, I mean that, you are also excellent at basketball, right? Like the reason you have dreams about the sport is because you were actually a guy who had handles, who could shoot it, who also talked trash, sources tell me. Like, how would you scout your own game? How would you assess it? Look, I am really uncomfortable talking about this at, at five, four and a half, 65 years old. I need an artificial hip. <laughs> I mean, please. Um, look, I loved to play. And I always felt like I learned a lot by playing basketball. I 
I played basketball with Cal Ripken a whole bunch of times. <laughs> How'd that go? If I was on his team, it really went well. If he played against me, and we're talking about the dingiest, dinkiest little gym you can possibly imagine. We're playing five on five, meaning there's nobody waiting to play the next game. If you lose, you get to play again, okay? Mm. He would pick me up occasionally at the end line and harass me all the way down the court. Wait, wait. <laughs> Cal Ripka Jr. was full court pressing Tim Kirkchen. And he's a foot taller than me, weighs 100 pounds more than I do. And he enjoyed the challenge of seeing if he could stay in front of me coming down the floor. So whatever basketball ability I had, I always felt like I used it in order to understand what the complete athletic picture was all about. And when I saw Cal Ripken compete like that in a pickup game, this told me how great a baseball player he was. If he cared that much <laughs> about me advancing the ball up the court, imagine how much he cared about knowing what pitch the pitcher is going to throw next, knowing what position he should be in the next time the pitch is thrown while at shortstop. So those are the lessons that I learned from playing something athletic is I learned about the athleticism of our baseball players. All right, so if Cal Ripken is really good at basketball, Tim, I, I do want to know who you'd say is the worst player you've ever competed against in pickup basketball. I will tell you, and he wasn't the worst. He wasn't the worst by any stretch. Mm -hmm. But I played basketball against Adam Sandler once. Yeah, in, yeah. Which was really cool. Steve Russian of Sports Illustrated, who, by the way, is a freaking genius. Yes. Steve Russian and I go to the uh, Reebok Club on the Upper West Side, and we're just about ready to leave having shot around, and in walks Adam Sandler. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he says, you guys want to play two-on-two. -two. He's got a guy with him who, to answer your question, is the worst player I have ever played <laughs> with. This guy had zero idea. It's like Adam Sandler grabbed this guy and said, you're coming to play two-on-two -two with me. And the guy, what's the guy going to say no to Adam Sandler? So we played two-on-two. -two. We won like four games. It was a complete beating. We could have played 100 <laughs> games, and we would have pounded them all 100 times. And after the game, I called home. And our kids were like seven and five. And I said, you're not going to believe what happened to dad today. And they think I'm going to tell some Derek Jeter story. Right. So I said, I played basketball today with Happy Gilmore. And they, <laughs> thought, they thought that was the greatest thing of all time. So, yes, I played with a lot of great players and a lot of bad players. Adam Sandler's teammate was the worst player I've ever seen. <laughs> if you're out there, somebody who knows who Adam Sandler's teammate was, please let us know. I want everybody on a worldwide hunt for this man to confirm that Tim Kirchner and Steve Russian did, in fact, destroy Billy Madison in pickup. So, Tim, the other thing that I would be very remiss if I did not mention with you here in this career retrospective that you've graciously indulged is that your voice is a thing. And it's a thing to the extent that professional baseball players have all taken to attempting impersonations of you. And I'm talking about former NL MVP Andrew McCutcheon, now of the Milwaukee Brewers, former Brewer Tim Dillard, JPR and Sebia. What would you say is the key to a good Tim Kirkchen? Well, you have to have a terrible voice first, and it has to go up in 
octave when you say something that you're truly excited about. J.P. Aaron Sebia, he's the worst, but the funniest at the same time. I went into the Blue Jays clubhouse. This is, you know, 12 years ago. And Ricky Romero says, you got to go talk to Aaron Sebi. He does a perfect impression of you. So before I know it, there are 60 players in this tiny Blue Jays clubhouse. And they're all gathered around me. And Aaron Sebia does his impersonation of me with 60 players howling in the background. Terry Francona, the mischievous former manager of the Red Sox at the time, was working at ESPN, and he's part of all of this, too. He thinks it's the funniest thing ever. So he decides we're going to ambush Tim on the air. So while I was out writing something, he and Carl Ravitch, the second most mischievous man in the world, <laughs> they arranged to get J.P. Aaron Sebia on the set, and they tape a segment pretending that J.P. Aaron Sebia is me. We're sitting here in Blue Jay camp. I've been looking all around for Kirkson this morning. We need to talk about Jose Bautista, but I think I found his stand-in. Tito, it's great to have you out here in Blue Jay camp. What? Give me something on Jose Bautista. How's he look this spring? You know, there's something about him. I talked to an American League scout this year, and he told me that he watched Jose Bautista, and it is coming off his bat like never before. And it was the single stupidest thing I've ever been a part of. <laughs> and yet it was hysterically funny, I must say. When Tim Dillard did it, this was the worst one ever. When Tim Dillard did it, he walks into the middle of an interview with Carl Ravitch, Aaron Boone, and myself. And in order to do the impersonation, he like ducks down, like he goes from 6'2 to 5'2. So he had to get my height <laughs> right also. It was so embarrassing. A method impersonation, and, yes. Right. We're going to be... Excuse me. Uh-oh. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh -oh. going to take over. <laughs> Thanks for the microphone. Uh, Tim Kirchin, ESPN, uh, talking with Niger Morgan here. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, um, we're going to talk a little bit about your, uh, your new stat. I talked to a couple of Brewers executives. And uh, we talked about the implant stat that we all know about. And for those that don't know it, that's uh, innings uh, minus plate appearances uh, from left-handed hitters with pants up. Uh, and this is only for singles and triples. We know doubles and home runs don't factor in. And Booney was laughing out loud. You know, He's crouching down to do this. This is embarrassing. About the hair, great hair. This is great. Yeah, I'm just happy to be here, giving some up. I can say now it was hysterically funny that he even <laughs> crouched down in order to do this impersonation. So, Tim, I want to get back at the very end here as to the reason why we are here, because Saturday, tomorrow, you will be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and you quibble about whether you're actually in the Hall of Fame or one of the journalists who get honored by the Hall of Fame. You are a Hall of Famer, Tim. Who and what will you be thinking about during this ceremony? Um, well, I'll be thinking about my dad. M mostly. My dad loved the game so much. He taught me how to play. He gave me a love for the game. He died in 2003, and I think about him every day. 
and I'll never get through that speech when it comes time to talk to him. Mm. He's a PhD in mathematics, MIT undergrad. He had a lot of things going for him, but in the end, that's who I'll think about. It's my father. Hall of Famer Tim Kirkchen. Congratulations. Well, thank you, Pablo. You did a great job with this interview. I appreciate it, and thanks for having me on. It means a lot, believe me. I'm Pablo Torre, and this has been ESPN Daily. Our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Andre Soto, Jalen Harris, Ty Reeves, and Jackson Agelo. I'll talk to you Monday. <laughs> 